Welcome everyone to another meetup of the data on Kubernetes community. This is our meetup number 41. This is our second meetup of the week. Um, always very excited to be here. My name is Bart Farrell. Gorka, if we can get the links on the screen. Um, if you are new to the community, you can always check us out on Slack. You can check us out on Twitter. You can check us out on LinkedIn. We're doing meetups in English. We're doing meetups in Spanish. We actually have a meetup in Portuguese later today. We have a meetup on Spanish next week on Monday. Um, looking forward to doing our first meetup in Hindi at the end of this month. Um, other things that we're looking forward to, Gorka, if you can share our screen. Gorka is our wonderful technical director. Um, just gonna show everybody a couple of announcements that we have going on. We will be hosting a date on Kubernetes uh, community day in KubeCon. All right, so uh, Gorka, can you go to the top actually and go to where it says, uh, um, yeah, it's fine. Review, no, to the top, all right, um, the other top, yeah. To, to where, all right, good. So we'll be hosting a co-located event in, in KubeCon, all right, on Monday, May 3rd from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, Central Euro uh, European Standard Time. Um, so it means folks in the West Coast, Evan, you would have to get up very early, but there will be talks all day, so there'll be things happening later on as well. Um, registration is totally free. If you're already registered for KubeCon, you just have to add it. If you're not registered for KubeCon, you just have to contact us. We'll be happy to get everything sorted out there. Um, I was very excited about that. And that actually ties in very well to what we're going to be talking about today with Evan, because a lot of the basic notions about this community is how to be, you know, working with stateful workloads, stateful applications in a cloud native environment. Um, so it ties in very nicely. Um, Evan is no stranger to this. Um, I will let Evan obviously explain his background more in detail. Um, as usual, this will be a pretty open conversation. So anybody that has questions, feel free to put them in the chat. Also, Evan's been very generous and great, uh, gracious about answering questions in our Slack. So whatever questions we are not able to address today in the meetup, we can continue the conversation there. Um, that being said, Evan Chan, who are you and where are you? Hey everyone! So uh, it's it's great. Uh, thank you, Bart. It's great to be here on the uh, Data and Kubernetes community. Um, so um, my name is Evan. I'm a um, senior data engineer at Urban Logic in uh, Vancouver, BC, Canada. And um, uh, yeah, like what else? So I, I've been doing basically data work, data architecture, data pipelines, uh, data engineering for for a long time. I was an early member of the, the uh, Spark and Cassandra communities. Uh, when when uh, Spark was uh, not 1.0, and, and I've just really loved working with data and working with other people that work with data. Very, very good. Um, and in your experience, when did this this notion of data on Kubernetes, I don't want to you know get any spoilers because I know you have some slides, but when did this, when did, because you know we've been talking to different folks about when was the first time you heard about it or when was the first time it was considered or what was the first conversation that you had? What was it like in your case? Yeah, you know what? I, I think, yeah, so I will get into this a little bit, but it, it did feel like for a long time, like you heard about Kubernetes and it was about stateless, you know, it was, it was like, and people thought, well, databases are kind of, and data is kind of separate. And so I, I feel like this is a more recent, maybe like the last, like maybe two years or something, like it, it's, it's hard to put a date on it, right? But like, yeah. um, you know, th that's when you started really hearing about, oh, people are running like, you know, data workloads on Kubernetes and, and then they started adding features, right? And uh, they started adding uh, the persistent volumes and, and the stateful sets and things like that. And, and, and I think that's when things started to really gel and, and now you have, you know, whole companies and whole ecosystem that's uh, really coming alive around that. And, and yeah. I'll, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'll get into that. Basically, I'll be talking about a state, you know, what, what, what is state, where does it live and how, how does, what does that mean in the context of Kubernetes? Very, very good. Outside of the context of Kubernetes, can I ask you, how often do you use the word ephemeral? Oh, that's that's quite funny. Like, I, I think, yeah. I think, um, I mean, I, ephemeral, probably more often than, than you think, just because there's so many things that are like comes and goes, you know, of course, yeah. every, everybody is on Kubernetes, but even before that, you know, there, there were infrastructure would go down, you know, so you have to assume, you know, that things might might be gone, you know. Like you said, is that yeah, temporary? Could be here, could be there. Like I said, it's just it's just funny because sometimes there are words that you know, like I remember learning the word ephemeral because of doing. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you did the SATs to go to college, but I remember. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those SAT vocab words that everybody had to learn. And so now yeah. being able to bring it back into this context of statelessness sure. and statelessness, um, yep. it's kind of nice. Um, but anyway, without further ado, if you want to jump right into your presentation, we can take it from there. But just like I said, just a reminder to everybody: feel free to ask questions. This is your time, so take advantage of it. 
Yeah, feel free. Just want to let this be kind of like an, an open thing, you know. So okay. without further ado, I, I will um, attempt to share my screen. Okay. And uh, hopefully everyone can see this. Yep. And then at the, at the end, I'll unshare it again. Um, so yeah, so designing stateful apps. I gave this talk uh, in November at a uh, data conference and uh, the name is escaping me now. But um, to, so to launch right into it, a little bit uh, more about myself. So I'm a senior data engineer at Urban Logic. So Urban Logic is really neat. We are actually a, uh, you might have heard of these data for good events where you people go and hack on open data to try to improve their communities, right? Like th maybe they go and uh, take this data and figure out how do we make, uh, I don't know, let, let's say improve transit or something like that. Well, this is what Urban Logic does. We actually, uh, we actually make online so data solutions for government that helps them plan and do transit better. And so, so that's really, really neat. I'm the creator of a distributed time series database called FileDB, which is basically distributed Prometheus. It is uh, at use uh, at Apple. And I've been doing big data for a long time, uh, the, especially with the Spark and Cassandra communities that uh, Scala for a long time. I'm now into Rust as well. But by the way, just a really short uh, promo thing. Uh, I will be speaking at uh, KubeCon on the Rust Day track also. Ooh. So feel free to check that out. Yeah. Very good. Um, and lastly, I, I love to take photos. So uh, if nothing else, feel free to follow me on Instagram. <laughs> no, that's good. So, it's always really nice. And yeah. it's always really nice. And we can probably talk about this later because like we had a we had a meetup a couple of weeks ago with uh, Tiffany from Harness. Shout out to Tiffany. Where we yeah, compared. I saw that. Yeah. yeah, it was super cool. Was so cool. anyway, we'll, we'll definitely have, we'll have to mix that. Can I just ask though, what uh, if somebody out there wants to create their own database, what are some yep. things they should keep in mind? Oh boy. Like, I, I guess nowadays it's like, you know, a lot of people are like trying to do this or I wouldn't say a lot of people, like most people aren't trying to create databases, but um, some of that will be, in, will be in this talk, right? But basically I think it is, um, the, the really hard thing is what is, what is the focus? Because there's so many databases out there, yep. right? Um, not, not just the type of database, but uh, because it is in general, kind of a crowded field. Um, I, I think there are a lot of niches and there are, there's a lot of room to do your own, but in general, it's like, what do you want to invent, you know, and what abstractions do you want to build on top of? And, and that's one of the things, like, I think actually, uh, Kubernetes becoming a, a good platform for doing this kind of thing, for doing serious data work, because it is starting to provide some really interesting abstractions because not everyone, you don't always need to invent or reinvent or redo every hard problem in say database and distributed systems. And a lot of people rebuilt on top of uh, existing platforms. So I think that's, you know, that's what I would think about is what is the, like in general in data, what, what is the unique thing? What is the unique contribution you're trying to do? Yeah. You know, and, in the, and in the sense that, yeah, to, to be able to stand out, because like you said, because there are so many databases out there yeah. in yeah. in that ecosystem, what's the unique selling point? What's the, the added value that you're going to be providing? Anyway, we, we can we can take yeah. a look at that later though. No, I mean just, just really quickly, I think someone because someone asked this question on the uh, on the Slack uh, about why we created FileDB. So so this is a case in point. When when we started the project a couple of years ago, three, four years ago, basically Prometheus had just come out. And, um, you know, everyone, we love the query language, you know, we love the idea behind it. Um, it was just that, you know, Prometheus designed to be single node and really wanted something that was uh, scalable and distributed. So, so we uh, started working on that, but, but that, that, that's, you know, um, and, and at the time there wasn't anything. Now there's, you know, more stuff that's out there. So mm -hmm. this is an example. So um, state, so state is really hard, right? It, it is maybe the hardest problem in distributed systems is what to do, what's your state? And I love this quote, this is quite funny, that there are only two hard problems in distributed systems, exactly one's delivery, guaranteed order messages, and exactly one's delivery. <laughs> and I think hopefully everyone gets gets it. It's it's that you like the exactly one's delivery is actually really hard <laughs> and it's very easy to repeat stuff. So what kind of state do we have? There's so many different types. 
And, and that's what makes this fascinating, right? There's the traditional structured tables, the stuff that fits into your uh, SQL database. We have a ton of semi-structured uh, data now with logs, with JSON, all kinds of stuff. We have graphs and networks, which are becoming increasingly important in machine learning. We have a lot of unstructured data. We have configurations and passwords. We have a lot of now domain-specific data, such as machine learning models, parameters, features, this, this sort of thing. So where does it all go, right? And more importantly, we want to think about what are the characteristics of the state that you have. Is it mutable? Is it immutable? Uh, how does it change? How temporary, permanent, or there's that word, ephemeral, is it, right? What are the persistence characteristics you want? What about availability and latency? Like how fast do you need it? How much you know, do you need it all the time? Is it okay if it's not available some of the time? And, and there's this notion of consistency, which I won't go into, but is a big deal in distributed systems. So now um, I think uh, Bart has just asked this question, but a couple of years ago, like we all thought of Kubernetes as this stateless thing. And so the idea is you put up your applications to Kubernetes, and then basically the state gets punted. So this is what I call Kubernetes stateless. This is like the traditional app. It shows up, but it doesn't keep any of its data. And it will interact with a lot of outside entities. So it might be talking to some, uh, say, Postgres database and RDS or something. Maybe it's talking to Mongo and you got, you know, things, cloud storage like S3. And, and, and so basically the app is doing a lot of these reads and writes to these different entities and all the state is kept in those entities, right? So this is the classic, what I call the stateless pattern. And that's fine. Let's go into this in a lot, little bit of detail to think about what is uh, really going on. So where's my state? So Kubernetes has containers and a container has read-only disk images, which are the files you have. You have these layers of them and it, it builds up. And then you have a temporary local disk and then you have memory. And what we find is that and, and then you're reading, writing to and from cloud storage and you have something else that is sending requests or events or so forth, right? So you can have state in any of these places. However, what we find is that the memory and local disk are not persistent, right? They are the kind of ephemeral. If the container fails, it gets restarted or something happens, that memory and that temporary local disk is gone, right? So, so this is why we keep all of our data in some external, what I call, you know, uh, cloud storage. It, it is external to, uh, to the container. But wait, I thought Stateless solves uh, all my problems. Well, um, this pattern I think can work for a lot of scenarios. Here's the thing. If all your state is pushed to other services, you find that you have to work with a lot of these services and the costs start adding up. If every state change involves the network, you start to add log latency. You have, to, you have to deal with recovering local state. Uh, now there are many ways around this, but um, there are many, most of the cloud providers will try to sell you on their uh, services. Like you have things like Dynamo, Kinesis. So um, you start being tied to certain clouds and keeping state consistent across the cluster can be tricky. So there, there's a lot of uh, issues that have to deal with, with the state. So this whole talk is talking about uh, what are some other patterns out there that we can use to deal with the state. And before I go on, we want to compare a little bit between stateless and serverless. This is a really few, uh, big topic or a really hot topic. And feel free to ask questions again. So. Uh, what we find is that, well, in a container-based environment like Kubernetes, you have the memory and local disk where you can basically cache, you can keep tra track of some state that is not persistent and disappears, but you can use it. The difference is serverless is 
So compared to what I call stateless Kubernetes, there is still state. It's just that it's not permanent. The memory and localness can be used. But when you have a serverless environment, you're basically serving a function where um, the, the life cycle is a lot shorter. It is basically like one invocation. So, you, so even the spaces that are temporary in uh, a Kubernetes container are not available to you. So in, in, in a serverless environment, you really have to be truly stateless where like everything has to be, has to uh, go in and out uh, through another cloud service. And that brings us to our next point, which is how can we take advantage of this local ephemeral state within your container, right? So you have memory and you have local disk. This is what we call local state. It is, it is local and we can use it to our advantage even though it's not persistent. So basically it, it is a, uh, we consider a two-tiered approach where we can keep track, we can build up some state that, that is local and, uh, and then we can perhaps reduce the IO, we can do things that can improve the performance, the latency of our applications. But the problem is that uh, this goes away so how do we deal with, if we take advantage of this local state, how do we deal with it going away? So that, that's one of the big challenges with working with state. And the classic pattern that we wanted to bring up are using what called a log pattern. This is basically writing a series of events. And we can compose our state using events. You can say that my events from zero to N builds up the state in my application. And this is really powerful because then with a log pattern, we can have checkpoints. And the checkpoints correspond to the state at a certain time in say our cloud storage, right? So, so using this pattern, we can then recover uh, data if we lose uh, some temporary local data, as long as we have this log that is persisted somewhere. Right, so it's basically the foundation of all uh, modern databases and data systems. Right, so is our folks fine with this so far? Okay, I guess no questions. <laughs> oh, well, let me go into an example. Maybe this will make it more concrete. So in FileDB, for example, this is pretty, actually this is not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily typical of database, but we basically built uh, the architecture on top of Cassandra and Kafka. And what happens is that millions of time series events that are really small, like your metrics, they come in uh, through Kafka and they go into each node. What we do there is that we use large amount of memory and local disk to cache things and to build up a representation that is a lot more compact we basically take the metrics that contain tags and contain say a time seven value, and we build up a really compressed uh, columnar chunks. Then we, we turn basically millions of samples that come in per second, and we turn into thousands of writes. So we, so we basically decrease the write amplification by several orders of magnitude before writing to Cassandra. Now, because we have to build this up, it takes some time. So we have a significant amount of local state. Right. So what happens when we might lose this data? We also use uh, a Lucene index, which is on disk. So what we do is that we persist this stuff and we're writing it. But at the same time, if we lose this node, we would use Kafka as a write ahead log. And we would have a checkpoint that says, okay, this is the last time we wrote this big batch of stuff to Cassandra. And from that time onward, if we lose any data that is local and temporary, we can read the data back from Kafka and recover that. Right? So that, that's a use of the log pattern to recover your temporary data that's local. And you can think of this log pattern as a kind of a stream processing pattern where you are taking logs, building up some state and outputting data. And I call this, this is also called uh, a, an event processing pattern. So 
Now let's talk about uh, stateful Kubernetes. Before I go on, maybe you should take a quick break to see if any questions or anything. And for you, uh, you know, in, in throughout this whole this whole process with all the different things you've been mentioning, what do you think is is probably the trickiest concept for for folks to grasp? Or you know, I mean, what are questions that you find that are that are frequently coming up when talking about these things? I think the um, that's a good question. I think. Yeah, I mean, just because, like, for example, in 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 one of the main talks that we're going to be having in May is that like tracing the journey from becoming a DBA to, to an SRE. And oh, so nice. what, it, so, you know, what are the things that you need to put in your backpack? So I'm saying like uh, throughout this, like, is it, is, you know, a question of mentality, getting hands-on experience, uh, getting certified or something? I mean, what, what kind of recommendations would you give? I think um, a lot of it are in the details, you know, like when I talk about, you know, logs, like at a very high level, it makes sense to, to people. But when you start getting to details, like how how, do, how does recovering data work? How how do how do checkpoints work? I think a lot of those things start to become really complicated. Mm. And so I think part of it is yeah, getting experience, like dealing with say data and databases and checkpoints, and like what does it mean when failures happen? Some of the experience. So from experience, like especially SREs would know what happens when checkpoints go wrong and you know things yeah. like that. Um, and and I, I think a lot of this is because it's kind of abstract, you know, and like a lot of times databases are magic things. And um, when you get into weeds of how to operationalize them, how to keep them up all the time, that, then you start really getting into the quote unquote fun, fun things. <laughs> yeah. And, so a little bit yeah. of patience is required to, to get to that point. Yeah, got, absolutely. Got a, absolutely. Yeah. We got another question. Um, so how do we map a generic database on bare metal versus a containerized stateful set based database? Does this mean one pod is one node? Ah, okay. That's a good question. I'll get into that actually in a few more slides. Okay. Yeah. Hold your breath. <laughs> yeah. So hold, hold, hold your breath. Tight. Yeah. Hold Sit your tight. breath a, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, we'll we'll talk about. I'm about to launch into like the the stateful sets stuff. All right. Good. Go for well, it. Well, feel free. I, I don't know. We'll answer your question, but uh, hopefully we'll. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, wait a minute. Okay. Here we go. So persistent volumes. I think uh, most of the listeners are probably familiar with this. So I don't think I need to go into this in any great detail, but um, this is a storage attraction that is persistent and survives pod restarts. So this is great, right? Because uh, the, temp the local disk temporary storage is, is not, right? And so uh, that means that the memory is not persistent, but now you have something local that survives restarts. And this is something that has basically persistent volume is like, seems like a local volume you can use standard POSIX uh, file IO. It is mounted and you configure it with uh, YAML as, as usual, but you can configure what kind you want. There's tons of different options out there. There are local persistent volumes that are a hard drive. Uh, basically they're attached to the node that uh, the uh, container is on. And uh, with stateful sets, you actually get that back. And then there are ones that are networked and attached to one pod at a time. This is things like EBS and uh, Azure. So each, each cloud provider has their own, but then there are also other solutions that are out there, Staff, Scale.io and uh, OpenEBS, which is a uh, really great solution. And oftentimes they can, I mean, you can tune them, but you can oftentimes get performance that is uh, close to local disk. And then finally you have replicated shared network storage where multiple pods can attach and share data. And there's a lot less of these. The classic one is like NFS, but there's a bunch of other ones like cluster and, and stuff and et cetera. Right, and uh, I think everyone's probably familiar with this, um, but uh, you can basically configure your parameters, the type of uh, volume that you want and what kind of storage you have. And, and the provisioner is what type of things it is. In this case, it is at UBS. But the really cool thing is that you can basically configure your storage characteristics at deploy time. Your application just has to worry about, well, it is a local disk. All right. So I think um, someone had asked about stateful sets. So 
uh, stateful sets are an abstraction in Kubernetes that ties the that remembers the persistent volume that is attached to your pods. So, uh, so that when, um, you know, let's say you up, let's say a pod fails or you're upgrading, it will make sure to it. For example, an upgrade cycle, it will detach persistent volume. Then it will, you know, allocate your new pod, and it will make sure to attach that previous storage again, so that you get back your state. And and because of that state, the usual pattern of upgrades changes. So the order that uh, it would go through, um, the order that you would go through uh, the upgrade cycle uh, changes. It goes through um, the pods and makes sure that the uh, the um, PV is detach and then attach again. And, and, and so th this can this can take a while. This is one of the trade-offs is that um, sometimes it can, uh, sometimes it can take a while to detach their persistent volumes. I, I will get into this uh, database thing in a minute, but um, you might ask, you know, why do I want to use these persistent volumes and the state for Kubernetes. And we, we, got a, we, got a, we got a quick question. Somebody oh, asked, sure. uh, sorry, Robert asked, how long is a while? You know, time is a very relative concept. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes, that, that's a good thing. I mean, in my, so I think the, you know, it, I, I think it ranges from um, seconds to like, I've heard minutes. I, I, well, I, I think what, what, I like gathering this information from uh, various people. Like, I, I would actually love to hear uh, your own stories about this, but I've heard a good rule of thumb is like, you know, something 90 some percentile is like around a minute, you know, but I think it depends heavily on what type of um, uh, attached volume you have. And mm -hmm. I'm talking about network ones, obviously like the, the, like the local ones are a lot faster. But networked ones, I've heard that it depends on, for example, if you use EBS, it uh, can depend on how much you provision. And if you provision less uh, bandwidth or storage, it might take longer to detach. Uh, or, or that oftentimes people will over-provision to uh, guarantee a better detachment time and things like that. Uh, but I, I think it, it varies on environment. I, I'd actually love to hear what, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Robert, did you have any time frame in mind there? You can you can just put in the chat. Uh, does a minute sound like it's long? Does it short? Anything relative to that? Like you said, it, there can be different strategies depending on you know what people are looking for. Well, anyway, you get, you keep keep going on and okay, here we go. Yeah. As usual, uh, he says as usual depends on the use case and what you need, as you mentioned as well too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I think usually the more you pay to. <laughs> the better performance you get, <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, but right. So let's look at, oh, sorry, I skipped over this. So um, you might want to run uh, stable service and database yourself to save money, right? This is, this is typically where people interact with personal volumes. Just, you know, they want to run uh, your uh, straight SQL database on personal volume and, and handle that yourself to uh, save some money because it's cheaper than using RDS. Uh, but there's a lot of other use cases. If you're doing data engineering, you'll be working with machine model, uh, machine learning models. Uh, data engineering involves a lot of files, right? It could be models, it could be uh, local files, CSV files, uh, what, what have you, right? And, and just throwing away that state could be expensive. So using persistent volume is a great way of keeping your data transformations alive. Uh, for a lot longer and lowering your recovery time. You might want to use local state to cache things. Maybe you're pulling files from S3 and having that local cache, you know, just, you know, saves you from a whole bunch of uh, network out to S3, right? And uh, I would say that local files are cool again, uh, that you know, I'm going to go into the history of databases again, but um, you know, things have gone out to the cloud, but at the same time, like having this interaction, like th th there's there's a lot of uh, performance reasons uh, for doing this as well. And finally, if you design for persistent volumes, the, the really cool thing is that it is one abstraction. You can basically take this design that works, something that works with local files, 
and you can use it on any cloud. This is widely supported and like there's, you can configure it and like going to different clouds is basically reconfiguring your YAML. Yeah, so, so that's a really nice property. You're not talking about changing APIs and so forth. So let's go into this common case of replicated uh, databases, right? So uh, typically for a standard database, you have you know, a leader pod and a couple of follower pods. And the, uh, the whole idea here is that uh, you know, with traditional database replication, you get better availability, uh, plus you have this backup and, and, and so on, right? And um, <clears throat> you would, um, so the things that you would need to uh, think about and take care of is uh, what happens when, uh, if you know, one, thing, one thing fails, and um, you would need, you would want to be um, notified so that, um, you know, let's say the leader fails, you know, the follower, um, then you have to bring, uh, bring it back up. Some, depending on the exact database, uh, you might need to issue some commands to reconfigure things for a while, you know? And um, fortunately, there are actually uh, things to help you out. So people have started coming out with, um, so, there are time. There were times when, depending on the database, um, like th th this would be like you know very very manual and having to change like network settings and and, and so forth. But now there's a lot of automation built around it. Uh, there are uh, Kubernetes operators that that are out that can help people uh, do this kind of thing. Like I think there's one for PG, and uh, it will automate a lot of this stuff uh, with um, having multiple. Uh, replicas, leaders, followers, uh, replication stuff. It, it, it takes care of a lot of uh, this stuff for you. So that I would definitely recommend people check that out. Uh, another example of, well, this is a little different, but if you're running Apache Cassandra, Cassandra has, um, you know, has multiple replicas for each uh, shard, right? And it needs to be set up in a certain way. And, and that didn't necessarily map well to the way that uh, the, the Kubernetes uh, stateful sets worked, you could have one set per bunch of replicas, but um, that does not necessarily, like um, things need to be laid out a certain way. Like ideally you want the replicas to be in different racks in, so that, you know, to minimize the chance of failure. So to help automate all this, people have started coming up with operators again for things like Cassandra, because some of the operations like setting it up uh, would, be, would be like pretty painful otherwise. Um, here's a fun thing, a, a brief history of databases. So in the beginning, people had one server and one disk, right? And after a while, of course, this was not adequate. So people built bigger servers with a lot more memory and the disks got bigger. And people would spend tons of money on these. Like basically it's the same model, right? It's a single server and all the database, database you know, what, you know, hopefully scale with this memory and this storage. And people sunk tons of money, right, into these storage solutions that would distribute over a network and whatever, but the model was still the same. You have a single server. And again, this became very limiting after a while and people found out this was not enough. So to scale, we started turning to distributed systems. So now every database figured out a way to replicate and shard their data. And, and now things get a lot more complicated. Different nodes talk to each other. You have different shards, you know, like there, there, there are tons of different models. You have the, um, uh, the leader follower. Um, I don't like to use the other terminology, like, and- Good job, you thank know. you. <laughs> no, <laughs> yes. no, no, seriously, and, good job. Yes, I, I, I spent some time renaming all the branches on our repos, but um, the uh, and you have you know the other model where you have replicas and so so there's different models out there, but basically the idea is let's use commodity hardware, let's scale out you know to a lot more nodes. So this works, except that of course like things get a lot more uh, complicated because now every data application uh, or database like thing ha has to figure out. How do I coordinate? How do I replicate? How do I distribute? And, and this is basically the hardest problem to solve, right? So, so the big point here that I wanted to make was 
around 20 years ago, like with, you know, um, Google came up with their distributed storage and then Yahoo followed with Hadoop. And this was a really big breakthrough. It's not just about big data processing, but the really big breakthrough is the power of replicated file storage. Basically, it was HDFS. And what HDFS did is it said, here is this storage abstraction where I have a giant network disk. I don't need fancy hardware for it. I don't need to buy RAID array. I don't need to buy fiber channel and tons of nodes can share this. It is storage that is um, replicated. And I know that it has a very good guarantee of safety. You know, I put stuff on there and I don't have to worry about it. And what this did was that this common layer that had this powerful storage abstraction, tons of applications started building on top of it. Uh, MapReduce first, but other things, you started to have XBase and you and other things came along, you know, Storm and Spark and, and Pig and like Mahout for machine learning. So, so this, this abstraction where you have these files turned out to be so powerful because it allowed all the data applications on top to not worry about that layer. They, they just used the storage and they were just worried about how to build this for, for their stuff. And this turned into this huge, this huge mod, the basis of the modern uh, big data ecosystem is all built on top of this file storage abstraction. So it, it is extremely key. And the, the key takeaway here is um, maybe we don't need to reinvent distributed coordination and replication in every data system. You know, like maybe we can use this abstraction, right? And, and that brings us to um, state for Kubernetes that we have this abstraction, which is uh, quite powerful. We have basically a cloud native storage abstraction, which you can configure at deploy time. And it means that applications don't have to worry as much about this, like say this replication part and things like that. It just has a disk that is out there and it is done for you. And, and Kubernetes is also extensible, which can make this work for like the previous case we pointed out, like the databases, it has operators, it has CRDs. So whatever needs that there are around, well, you know, this needs to be done, uh, at upgrade time, you know, you can automate that, right? Which is really, really nice. Um, basically, the previous example with FileDB where I had Kafka and Cassandra. So at the time we, we started, um, this stuff, the persistent volume, stateful set stuff wasn't really there. You know, if, if I was to design it now, I would design the solution around like prison volumes, like all the stuff we did to, we basically did a lot of stuff so that our Lucene local disk files would be presented somewhere. And I, I don't have to do that anymore. You know, I would, we would just put the files on the local disk and you would just forget about it. I would even put the log on, on the local, uh, on what, when I say, sorry, I, when I say local, what I mean is the PV. It, it's, you know, like probably for, for, uh, persistent reasons it would not be local, but or it could be local. But you know, well, what I mean is that a lot of the things where we would punt off to cloud services like Kafka, we could have a lot of that local, and that changes the cost equation, you know, quite a bit. Um, it, it it means that we have a lot of our state can can be um, how we um, persist it and recover it. You know, the model becomes simplified. You know, so. Um, and you can use this as a building block. So for example, your app, um, I wouldn't say instead of, but you can think of this as an alternate pattern. You can have, you can use your local disk and you can use things like, you know, local uh, KV stores, you know, your rocks DB, your, your local, like, you know, uh, there's a lot of embedded databases um, that can be built into apps and things like Lucene, you know, machine learning models, files, you can build that into your PV and you can use one of the replicated ones like OpenEBS. And uh, this takes care of your replication and your failover. And it uses different shards, right? So, so this, this is a trade-off you can think about having this local thing and using this storage as an abstraction. And you can even use 
different kinds of uh, clustering uh, layers to help you coordinate in their different apps. Um, one I've used a lot before is something like, you know, Akka is like distributed actors, but there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. I feel like I just went over a lot of, well, let me go over one more slide then I should probably pause. No worries. <laughs> and I have a question about sharding. So oh yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah, what, 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 go ahead. Yeah, why don't we? No, no, just because very famously in one of our, in one of our meetups, precisely where we were talking about, um, you know, is Kubernetes ready for, ready for data? is that Patrick McFadden from Datastack, shout out to Patrick, uh, was saying, you know, as this quote of, you know, friends don't let friends shard. Um, and so anytime the term sharding comes up, it's something that we always ask uh, our speakers. Why do you think he would say that? Hmm. That's a, um, that's a good question. That's a good question. I, I think that the... <clears throat> Um, or perhaps what would your, what would, that's what I'm saying is that what would your precautionary advice be for someone in a situation like, Hey, this is a, this is the option we're going for. You know, I, I think, um, it, it's, I, I would say that it's, I, I'm not saying, Hey, this is the way you should do things. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think this is a really interesting option. Like a lot of people, um, you know, you know, it's like this, right? Like the, the way people had solved a lot of scaling stuff, they sharded their databases, uh, th then uh, we we opened up and had things like uh, Cassandra and, and Cassandra is a wonderful database. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I love that community. It's it's just very different. You know, it, it is it is a very different data model. Um, so oftentimes when people move to that data, like people don't realize that um, you know things like the database. It, it's about it's so it's it's kind of like this. Um, there there are trade offs. Um, the ideal is, of course, that you could have the pie and eat it too. Like you could have a, you know, people, a lot of people want, for example, like a distributed uh, SQL solution or something like that. Um, I, I think what you have to realize that a lot of the distributed, like database that were built out to be distributed, um, use a different data model. So they're not like uh, full, you know, a lot of them are not databases where you store your data and you can run all kinds of queries on it. Like Cassandra is like that. It, it, it's good at uh, certain things, but uh, it has to fit your data model. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I used to think, oh, why do people shard? But for a lot of applications, sharding actually works really well. And it's, uh, if it works for you, like Facebook does this at huge scale, you know, mm -hmm. like um, if it works for you, go for it. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's, I think it's kind of like that. Okay. Um, Good. No, 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 no. And I think I... It, because there's also a huge amount of um, history and maturity in database products that are out there, you know, in yeah. the Postgres and, and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, we start talking about Postgres. I mean, we've had multiple Postgres meetups, but it's, you know, battle tested decades of, of people all over the world working on this. Um, so there's no shortage of experience or know-how when it comes to when it yeah, comes to that. Yeah. So I think basically like for, for me as, as a, um, Kind of uh, data person and architect. I, I think I, you know, uh, used to be a little bit more opinionated about this, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I think now it's like I, I think there's, yeah, I think there's many ways to do it, and right. and and uh, I think yeah, um, I, I think sharding is just you know obviously, uh, you know, again you have a lot more pain when you're trying to merge stuff from different things. So it, it works for certain use cases, and and it's not going to work for other use cases. And yeah. for those other use cases. Maybe you need to just pay money and you know have to distribute it SQL database. You know, I, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you said, is what it was the same thing about the timing question earlier. Is you know what's your budget? Um, yeah, that is that is going to play into that. That is a factor. It's not the only factor, but it's one to keep in mind. But I think some of these that there are layers that will help you route your data. Like I pointed out Akka because it's one of these things that has like a notion of like basically it it, it helps uh, route your data and and get things from different places. Um, and, and so, so there, there are also ways you can build your application that way. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, to help bridge, to help bridge these, these different things. We got one, we got one other question. Um, so, yep. uh, what options do you suggest for meeting zero RPO requirements around stateful apps? Uh, so, sorry. What is that? Zero? Zero RPO, RPO requirements around stateful applications. Got it. I, I'm not quite sure what the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure what the RPO is referring to. What does, yeah, what are we referring to here with RPO? Oh, recovery point. 
Oh, zero. Rec- so, so basically they want to not have to worry about recovery at all. Sorry, recovery point objective. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, recovery point objective. Got it. Um, if they chew on that a little bit, I'm, I'm not quite, uh, that's probably, I'm trying to map that to another term. Yeah, the, the time it takes to fully, to uh, the time it takes to fully recover the app. Yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. Um, so basically they want zero recovery time. <laughs> well, I, I would I would say that there's never such a thing as like absolute zero recovery time, but you know, like you can get really close to it, right? Like, yeah, they, they've kind of clarified here saying meaning no data loss. Oh, no data loss. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think in general, like uh, the, well, I, I think there are general patterns out there, right? Like um, the log pattern that I mentioned uh, is, is a good one. That, that basically, like, in order to make sure you don't lose data, you have to basically use an abstraction like logs to protect the transient state that you have. Like, you, you almost never have, like, zero transient state. So it's more about how do, you, how do you minimize the gap to, like, how do you minimize the gap uh, of your transient state? And what I would say is that um, the more that, the further away that things are, for example, like earlier when I, when in fact we had put our state in a Cassandra and in a Kafka, the further away things are, generally the more transient state you're gonna have, right? Because like it takes longer to reach that, you know, that persistence. So I would say that um, you can try to minimize the gap by like, if you move to a something that uses a local disk or a persistent volume that can help minimize the gap if those things minimize your latency and like how fast you can write, Right, so so that that and, and the smaller your transient state is, then you know the better, the more you can minimize that gap, and and you can try to make it as close to zero as possible. It just depends on how much engineering resource you're willing to throw at the problem, right? So I don't know that helps answer that. At some point, then you decide it's good enough. Is usually where people end up. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about this machine learning case, which is the thing really neat. This is a slide from Amazon. Um, you don't have to use Amazon, but the idea is I can use, I can have a pipeline that writes some data, say models or training jobs. It can write it to a shared persistent volume. Uh, in Amazon, they call it FSX or something like that. It, you know, there's other ones out there. And, and then I can serve this using Kubernetes pods that mount this volume. So, so, so this is a, cool abstraction, people would use things like HDFS uh, for a lot of use cases like this, but this is a way that you can do this uh, on Kubernetes. It's a, I think having a shared volume does make it a lot easier to map like distributed jobs to, to serving training models. Um, but yeah, so this is a really neat use case. And I think the, the really big deal when asked about data on Kubernetes, I, I think the really exciting area opening up is going to be machine learning on Kubernetes, you know? So this is, this is happening, and but a lot of exciting stuff happening. Um, I don't really have to go over, uh, but uh, basically just some trade-offs for considering uh, the use of, and, and by the way, this is not an either or, but this basically uh, trade-offs for cloud data services versus persistent volumes. So we have cloud data services, the replication distribution is handled by the service or database. With persistent volumes, basically you configure how things were replicated. You can decide for no replication or you can usually uh, configure a number of replicas for networked PVs. Um, but uh, they are usually, I would say usually local to a pod. And so the app would need to short and handle. One, one exception uh, is that if you use networked ones, then you can share, uh, sorry, not network, but if you use something like cluster, you can uh, share data more easily. So that's one way that you can uh, easily uh, share things and have to do less coordination. Um, you are comparing a standard POSIX API versus uh, different you know, database service APIs, and you have um, closer to local disk latency. Uh, but you have different considerations for handling your your data. So um, that's about it. Um, and in conclusion, uh, think about your state, what kind of state you have and the characteristics you need. 
and know that there's a really wide spectrum of design. You can stick to the serverless or the stateless model with using cloud services, but be adventurous and don't be afraid to venture into using more local state uh, and taking advantage of everything that Kubernetes offers you with, uh, with persistent volumes. And I think that's about it. I'm you know, happy to take questions. Oh yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll leave I'll leave it on this slide, you know, so feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, um, Instagram. I love more followers. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and I have a, I have a personal about page or blog with some random stuff on it. So, okay, good. We got all the places to check you out now, because we did talk about this in the very beginning is that you are an avid photographer. So as we were saying previously about tracing this journey from becoming, you know, DBA to SRE, when did you start with photography and how could you maybe relate, you know, how you are a photographer for now with also how you see databases now? That's uh, wow. That's a, um, that's kind of a big question. <laughs> let's, just start, um, let's just find out about when did you start taking pictures? When did you start with photography? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it started a long time ago. Like after college, I, I was uh, taking a, I wanted to take a community uh, class on yeah. photography at that time. They were still doing film. So I did like black and white and actually go into a dark room and stuff. Nice. And, and I thought that was like really cool. Just, just you know, this was uh, kind of magic, like watching the chemical process work. And it's been kind of on and off, you know, like it's, a lot of things happen, like, you know, I had a family and stuff. I think more recently, <laughs> yeah, like that, that'll it, do it. I, I got that'll the big it. like SLR stuff. And after a while it became heavy and I kind of like, you know, stopped really being into it that much. Uh, and more recently I've gone into it more because uh, I started to discover um, mirrorless cameras, which are really small. So they were like small and I could carry them around really easily. So then I started doing a lot more and, and I started incorporating more like digital uh, techniques. And, and this is where it ties into like the SDRU stuff, like, you know, started to think about how do you manage like this huge volume of photos that you have? Like, how do you back up, you know, and what are good cloud services for, uh, doing backups and uh, how do you organize your data uh, and thinking about how to organize it in a way that is transparent and can survive uh, kind of like uh, provider independence, you know, like, like I, I, I like to keep my data so that it's not just all like Adobe's property or something like that, you know? <laughs> so Yeah. 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 Um, no, but so, that's, that's precisely yeah. it. I mean, like from having conversation with folks in the storage world, like we had Gary, the CTO of uh, Cloudian on, and, and that's exactly what he was saying is that like, in the same way that if you have your your couch and your family photographs in a storage room, like you don't want that storage room being sold to somebody else who can then do whatever they want with your stuff. Um, yeah. So it yeah. just, whether it's like you said, whether it's it's photographs or you know the famous example of cat pictures or things like that, yeah. we have to we need to find a place to, to keep our stuff. I think though what you were saying is that the sort of evolution is that the questions that you're thinking about the scope. Um, the different possibilities that can come into play. I think that might have something to do with it. But I think the other point here yeah. is like, is understanding the importance of being a lifelong learner and that- Yeah, you yeah, never... no, I think you're right. There, there's so much to learn in every field. And, and I think you have to keep learning and, and there's no better time for learning things. Like there's so many like things like podcasts and like, you know, blogs and there's so many resources like that, that this is just uh, the best time that there's ever been to learn things like make like- even the kids that are home from school right now or can't like necessarily go to school, like you know, yeah. there's so many resources now for them compared to like they can pick up just about anything online. It's true. So No, it's very, very true. The access to that information is, is much more uh, readily available. Um, another thing, okay, so this is one of the questions that we had that I, that I tossed out on Slack, but what is the most complex thing in your opinion about working with data? Uh, specific to Kubernetes or, or just in general? I, maybe, we can, I, maybe we can think about it from a, let's think about it in general first and then maybe turn it over to Kubernetes. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I, I think, I think it's definitely like uh, recovering state and not losing data. Like someone had asked about how do you minimize that? Right. I, I think this is, this, this is the challenging things. Like, I, I think it's like easy to work with data if you don't care about throwing it away. You know? <laughs> 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 that, that, that sounds kind of trite, but, um, <laughs> but it's I, true, I, right? I, I yeah, think it's true that like not losing data is a uh, really big deal. And, and I think this is kind of why I like working with it. It, it, it is really hard in that way. Precious element. Especially yeah. Yeah. moving data, like streaming data is even harder, you know? So 
um, I, I think that that is really, yeah, I, I think that's it. It is, is uh, recovery and checkpointing and, and, and then the other part is for distributed data. How do you keep it consistent? And, and, and how do you balance consistency and availability and other things? And um, yeah, that, I, I think that, that is, uh, I think those are the hard challenges. And would you say the same thing would apply in the Kubernetes space? Yeah, I mean, I think it does. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that, uh, but, but, but I think, and, and I think this is one of the uh, stories is that having, um, having the abstractions that like, you know, we have folks like, you know, OpenUBS and, and staff and other people uh, trying to take on the hard problems of how do we uh, keep from losing data once, obviously you have to get it to their, um, their platform or, you know, persistent volume first. But um, I think that helps solve part of the problem though and uh, makes things easier because that's one, one less thing that you really have to think about is I just have to get, I have to get something there. Once it's there, then data gets replicated and, and preserved. Hmm. Yeah, this is, I think that's, I think that's a really good point. And anyway, just one other thing I wanted to think about as well too, is because you mentioned, you know, upcoming trend, machine learning. What other things, yep. oh, we got, sorry, but we got one other question as well. Um, any gotchas on how to proceed with moving existing databases such as MySQL, uh, et cetera, into Kubernetes? Hmm. Um, existing databases. Well, I, I think, you know, like, I don't think there's anything magic about like running them on Kubernetes necessarily. I, I, I think, but I think what you would want to think about is just the, um, you know, the storage aspect uh, and uh, what are the characteristics that you want? Like, it depends on where, um, when you say migrating, there's somewhere you're migrating from, right? So is that yeah. like your, um, is it already in, in some cloud or are you migrating from RDS or are you migrating from, uh, you know, like some bare metal or something like, so, so, so then you have to think about the characteristics, like for bare metal, like you're used to a certain reliability, you know, and um, when you move to the cloud, like you could use the most reliable, like persistent volume implementation and pay more for that. But it's kind of like you have to realize the trade-offs, like you're moving to something that might be a little less stable, like, um, you know, is, is your um, backup game and uh, uh, replication game up to speed, you know, and like, so, so, so it, I, I think you have to triple check those the operational aspects you know and and think about the storage characteristics and things like that all right as you said depends on where you're going from um not just where you're going to but apart from machine learning do you expect any you know in the upcoming six months and the rest of 2021 any new things on the horizon for the data on kubernetes space i think you had mentioned one of your questions about like multi-cluster and i think that's really interesting like um mm. People do want to. Um, I, I think that is still a a field that is probably underexplored. It is uh, how do we backup data across um, clouds? And for example, like Cassandra is popular for this reason. It has like a multi. I said multi cloud, but basically, um, it, it can replicate across clusters. So I, I think this is a something that we'll probably see more movement on. Like maybe we'll have custom operators and things like that, that can coordinate, you know, it's just, you, you need to coordinate things like, Hey, if, if one, like if Amazon loses a whole data center, like how can we make sure that my cube cluster and some other like geographic regions are up to speed and can recover it. So it's, it's like coordinating that stuff. You know, I, I think we'll see movement in the space. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, very, very good. Well, that being said, we are pretty much out of time, but as always, uh, if folks have any questions, we can definitely take the conversation to Slack. I had a couple other questions that we didn't, we weren't able to get to today, but, um, we do have a tradition, um, where we always, uh, where we always have somebody in the background who's creating a visual representation of things that we're talking about. So Evan, if I can get you to stop sharing your screen, yep. um, yep. so we can share our screen really quickly. Um, 
I th- oh, I still have to click on it. Okay, there we go. Yeah, it's all good. No worries. <laughs> it's so funny. I always say this, that we're talking about data on Kubernetes, but it seems that Zoom gives us many more problems than just about anything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. That, that <laughs> no, is true. Yeah, if somebody from Zoom is listening, please work on your user experience. <laughs> <laughs> because there's, there's plenty of room for improvement. Uh, with all the money they're making, you think it would be better. There should be a hackathon for Zoom. Anyway, uh, yeah. Gorka, if you can share, if you can share our screen. Um, so our good friend Angel was creating a visual representation of the things that were being talked about. Um, as he, as as it was mentioned more than once, you know that state is hard. He even made a reference to to Bob Dylan as a hard rain is going to fall. Um, so we have a, a, quite a few different elements that were uh, that were featured in there that were mentioned in the talk. Um, but I think we can all agree that it was very, very thorough. We've had more than a couple of talks about um, stateful versus stateless um, in our community. And this was a very, very well-rounded one with very concrete examples. And definitely the first time that I've spoken to somebody who's created their own database. Um, so anyway, that being said, uh, thank you very much, Evan. I, I, for all the folks who may, may have arrived a little bit late, um, you can check out his talk that will be on in the... KubeCon Rust track. That's what you said? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Bart, thanks so much for having me on. And, and I love that graphic, by the way. Okay, good. Yeah, we'll be sending that to you. Yeah. And everyone should also check out all of Evan's other links for photography, all the other stuff that's going on. Um, anyway, Evan, thank you very much for being such a wonderful guest. Yep, thanks so much. And yeah, All right. See everyone Take care. later. Bye-bye. Cheers. Yeah.